1: Welcome to the Martech Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Shapiro, and today we're going to talk about how trust signals work and when to use them. Joining us is Scott Baradell, who is the CEO of Idea Grove, which is a public relations and marketing firm focused on B2B technology clients. Working with clients ranging from venture backed startups to the Fortune 500 mainstays, Idea Grove helps their brands stand out in a crowded, noisy marketplace. And in addition to providing us with our guest today, Idea Grove is also a sponsor of the MarTech Podcast. Yesterday, Scott and I talked about trust signals for PR and marketing, and today we're going to continue the conversation talking about why third-party validation is a critical step to trust. All right, here's the second part of my conversation with Scott Baradell, the CEO of Idea Grove. Scott, welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, excited to continue our conversation where Yesterday, we outlined what a trust signal is, which is basically all of the signals that are online that help your customers feel like they can, well, trust you. It's everything from what you're putting on your website to who's talking about you, and also the data that Google is ingesting. I want to dive into third-party validation today. You can control your website. You can put in your trustee, your BBB signals. You can but logos from your customers, all sorts of fun stuff that make you seem credible and trustworthy. You can always clean up your house, but you can't necessarily clean up your neighbor's yard. How do you think about making sure that the third-party validation you're getting from the external world helps you build trust?
2: Well, of course, a lot of what are the most persuasive elements of our website are third-party validation, like a Better Business Bureau seal, you have to get approval for that. If you have complaints against your business, you can't get one. So even through third-party organizations, it's something that you don't directly control. You have to have them vouch for you by whatever criteria they use. Now, What's changed, and that's been the case for a long time, the Better Business Bureau has been around since 1912, but what's changed is this whole thing of third-party validation has become so democratized. You've gone from, in the tech world, I can tell you, having been in tech, PR, and marketing for many years, it used to be the Gartners and the IDCs, these big analyst firms, wielded so much power and influence because big buyers of IT products would go to them for their recommendations. Oh, who's in the magic quadrant? Who did my analyst say would be a good vendor to purchase from? These days, they go to review sites like G2, Trust Radius, Take Your Pick. Gartner has Peer Insights now. They've bought three other review sites because this all is coming from the bottom up now. The data shows that across the board today, when you're buying something, and this is true whether you're buying just a consumer electronics product or you're buying multi-million dollar software for your company, we believe in online reviews as much as we believe in recommendations from our family and friends today. So that kind of third-party validation carries enormous influence.
1: I feel like we're in the, let's call it the post-truth era, and often what you see or what you hear doesn't necessarily have to be true. Talk to me about some of the ways that brands are manufacturing trust signals and whether they can actually be trusted.
2: Well, certainly there's a big issue today with fake reviews. As part and parcel, as soon as something is seen to have influence in the way that customer reviews do, bad actors are going to try to take advantage of that and to manipulate that. It's been a real challenge for Amazon, Google. Amazon, it's been estimated that over 30% of reviews in its consumer electronics section, for example, are fraudulent. They work very hard to try to vet reviews. Lots of times, I can tell you this as someone who just published a book and asked my friends and colleagues to kindly leave a review, A lot of times they couldn't leave a review, even though it was a legitimate review because of the screening process that Amazon is using to try to combat this. But it's a difficult challenge for brands and for consumers, the kinds of things that consumers do to try to deal with this issue because they know it's out there. Customer reviews have become more important and more plentiful. Over half of all reviews online being Google reviews, consumers are looking more skeptically at it Although they don't necessarily know how to evaluate which reviews are to be trusted and which aren't. So they do things like this. It's been shown that if you have a star rating of 4.3 or 4.5, that's going to be more trusted than if you have a star rating of 4.9 or 5 you're more likely to sell with a 4.5 than a 5 because the consumer is more likely to assume that you haven't manipulated those reviews. So this is the world we live in where it can be very difficult and you have to kind of using the methods at your disposal to try to figure out what you can believe and what you shouldn't. A couple of things that I've heard that are interesting about reviews. First off, you mentioned
1: Amazon and their ability to sort reviews or filter who can leave a review And they don't want your friends and family to leave reviews because you're going to manufacture them from people who didn't organically purchase your product. I've heard that they even go as far as if your friends or family have had the same IP address, meaning that they were in your home. They recognize the IP address of where your account is based, and they'll filter people out on a geographic radius from you. So you can't just have your friends and family buy the actual product and review, even if they are actually purchasing the product. Companies put an incredible amount of effort to try to keep their reviews organic, but there's no getting around that reviews can be manufactured. So great. Now we can say, look, we all know that some of the reviews that are out there are BS. You go on to Yelp. If somebody's got 8,000 reviews for a local Thai restaurant, there's probably a lot of fake reviews happening there, or it's the greatest restaurant that's ever made Pad Thai. There's also the idea of your third-party validation isn't just coming from the data, from the check marks, from the stars, from the reviews. We're also seeing third-party validation coming from influencers, coming from other sources. How do you think marketers should think about
2: getting validation
1: from other trusted sources, people that have influence, people that have audiences?
2: I I use a model that has kind of helped me and my team and has helped us with clients to kind of look at the bigger picture especially when they're so focused on hey customer review i need more google reviews or i want to be in this media outlet i call it a continuum of influence and what i mean by that is on the one end you can have an individual customer and an individual customer who leaves a review and if that review seems authentic to the person who encounters it it speaks to that use case so it's a similar situation That person can be greatly influenced by that one individual review, by one person who has no influence per se beyond that. But to that person who was influenced to make a purchase based on that review, you can't have more influence than that. Now replicate that by many customers with many use cases. And to speak to the thing of how you get to the authentic reviews, typically it's going beyond the star rating and when you're reading and you're finding things that have enough detail and color that they speak to you. You're not going to be able to buy fake reviews like that. So if it just is a just kind of platitudes of how great a place is, that's one thing. But if it gets into those authentic experiences that someone really relates to that has enormous influence and that's very real going up the chain. Let's say you are a customer who likes the Thai place, but you also happen to have a pretty good following on social media and you want to just say, I love this Thai place. That's made you more than an individual customer of you. You've become a customer ambassador, which is kind of on the path to becoming that micro influencer then the macro influencer. And then up to the mega influencers and the big media sources, if you think about it, it's a continuum from having a small focused amount of influence all the way up to kind of mass market influence. Getting in front of that bigger audience doesn't always mean you're going to have better results as a brand from that, because sometimes the following is less loyal or less likely to take an action based on what that source of influence advises or recommends.
1: What we've seen in the trend in influencer marketing is that the notion of the micro-influencer, getting people that have small, authentic followings at scale, tends to be more powerful than working with one giant influencer. You're basically buying credibility, not just reach. And There's always an internal debate with marketers trying to think about, well, what's practicality, what's reality, and what actually is an authentic use case? How should marketers balance this notion that getting reviews or building a reputation with influencers is something that you can manufacture or buy as opposed to having your product speak for itself and having these things happen organically feels authentic. Look, everybody can go out and buy reviews and it might actually help your business. Why wouldn't you be doing that? Everybody can pay an influencer to talk about their brand. What's okay, what's not.
2: Paid and organic, paid, unpaid, paid, earned. I think those are kind of old-fashioned distinctions at this point. I think what really matters is trusted or untrusted. So, for example, coming from PR, the traditional point of view is we do influencer relations. We don't pay influencers, like, just like we wouldn't pay a journalist to write a positive story. That's unethical. Well, when it comes to an influencer, particularly a micro-influencer their followings understand that these people need to earn a living. And they don't assume that because they are accepting money that they're then going to endorse a product they don't believe in. In fact, once an influencer starts to willy-nilly just endorse whatever because they want the money... That's when their influence begins to fade. They might continue to have a lot of followers, but in terms of having true, passionate followers who are influenced by their recommendations, that declines once the trust declines. So it's not about paid or unpaid. It's about trusted or untrusted. Same is true for customer reviews. There's a bunch of fraudulent reviews out there, no question about it. So I'm not going to use reviews? What am I going to use? The brand saying it's great? No, I'm going to look at the customer reviews. I'm going to look at which sites. I know in B2B Tech, where MySpace for my clients is, there are review sites that they do a phone interview for every single review. And they're going to confirm where you work. So there are different levels of vetting. So I could say, I'm just going to go to sites where I know that the vetting is strong, or I'm going to, maybe I'll look at Google reviews, but I'm going to look carefully at the details of what they say and then form a judgment. Same thing happens with influencers, whether nano, micro, macro, mega, same thing. People are forming their own judgments, whether, do I believe this person? Do I believe this is a genuine endorsement? Or are they just trying to make a buck? But for the most part, influencers that have a specialty area that they focus on, they're passionate about that. They care about that. And that has so much more credibility than you think about the old celebrity advertising that go back to Babe Ruth endorsing cigarettes or the Flintstones endorsing cigarettes. It it was just... I was
1: thinking Dan Marino and Isotoner
2: gloves. For some (laughs) reason, that was the first one that came to my mind. Well, you know, I was a big Dolphins fan and still am. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I'm still a Dolphins fan, but yeah. But you're in Dallas. The Dallas Cowboys (laughs) are like religion. Well, I grew up in Virginia, but I did adopt the other Dallas teams, but I grew up hating the Cowboys. So I don't hate them anymore, but I can't root for them. In any case, the kind of influence that you can connect to your product today, I think ultimately is far more authentic than what was done in the past through simply dollars paid where you're trying to, as a brand, leverage someone's uh, celebrity as an athlete or an actor. What does that have to do with isotoner gloves? I'd rather someone who was some geek who geeked out about gloves all day long and had 3,000 followers who like to talk about gloves, that person said these are the best gloves. And I wouldn't care if that person got paid because I don't think they would say they were the best gloves and they would risk the credibility they'd built, let alone sell out about something they're so passionate about. That's what I think is pretty cool about this kind of continuum of influence and being able to find that influencer or set of influencers that you can partner with as a brand. We all have to make our own decisions.
1: And the reality is you might be able to manufacture a third-party validation. You can buy fake reviews and it might help your business. At the end of the day, it can only take you so far. People aren't stupid. They understand what is a manufactured review. If they're paying attention, at some point, your consumers will start to understand what shady marketing practices are. The key to third-party validation that actually lasts and grows is authenticity. Yes, you can manufacture it. Yes, you can even fake it. But the reality is that if it's not coming from an authentic source, eventually the duration of that third-party validation, that trust, it goes away. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Scott Baradell, the CEO of Idea Grove. Join us again tomorrow when Scott and I wrap up our conversation talking about what trust signals Google looks for. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Scott, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter. His handle is Dallas Inbound, or you could visit his company's website, which is ideagrove.com. And you can also purchase a copy of the book Trust Signals by going to book.trustsignals.com.